A formal good evening to you all. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, once again for our monthly series on Theologies of Transformation and Actions for Justice. Um, uh, you've probably heard the spiel by now, but um, Interfaith Action has 10 interfaith principles that guide our life and work. Um, you may be familiar with our three thematic areas of common home, common life, and common good. But these 10 principles get at some of the uh, the nitty gritty of, of, of what we're about um, as an organization and what drives our work. So um, this is actually our seventh conversation. Uh, last month, uh, the Reverend Sal Sapienza gave a reflection on our sixth principle of protecting and preserving our common home. And you can find these conversations on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And tonight we will be discussing our seventh principle on an ethic of hospitality, migrants and communities of faith. We had the uh, opportunity, uh, like we were talking about earlier, to celebrate uh, the Harvest and Harvesters just a week ago, which was a celebration for the bounty of creation and for those who care for it, especially migrant workers. So it's fitting that uh, we're having this conversation at all times, but um, uh, looking forward to uh, our conversation tonight. I'm going to actually share, as I have been, the, the principle on my screen. I need just a moment. All of our faith traditions contain holy stories about migration and the importance of welcoming the stranger and the migrant as fully belonging in our common home, the household of God. Inspired by these traditions, we commit to solidarity with migrants around the world and work to ensure their dignity, human rights, and their protection. Our holy writings remind us that the outsider must be included and is often the bearer of transformation. You know, that's a heating bag. I look for the heating bag. And here to uh, lead us in this conversation is uh, Dr. Tatiana Reynoza, who is uh, on the board of Interfaith Action and is also an assistant professor in the Department of Art, Art History, and Design at the University of Notre Dame, and is also on a sabbatical this year at uh, the Geddes Museum and in, a, in, in, in warm California, in a warmer <laughs> place than uh, many of us are right now. Uh, Dr. Reynolds's research and writing focus on contemporary Latinx art, and she specializes in the history of printmaking of Latinx artists in the United States, with an emphasis on the themes of immigration, race, and histories of colonialism. Tatiana, thank you so much for your time and looking forward to your presentation. Thank you, Stephen, for that warm welcome, and thank you all for joining us uh, this evening. Afternoon for me. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen so that I can pull up some images. And there we go. Uh, can everyone see it? Yep. Yeah. Great. Um, so the title of my talk today is An Ethic of Hospitality, Art, Migration, and Communities of Faith. And um, I want to begin with the disclaimer that I was raised Catholic, and so that is the faith tradition that I'm most familiar with and the rituals and, and iconographies that I'm most familiar with, but, um, you know, in the service of having an interfaith conversation, I've also brought in a couple of examples from um, the Jewish community and the Muslim community so that um, we can put this in, in a broader context. And as Stephen mentioned, I 
am on sabbatical this year. I am um, actually doing a project here at the Getty Museum. Um, the Getty Research Institute has fellowships that are themed every year. And the theme for this year is actually art and migration. So um, I'm beginning a, a new project that looks at um, Central American diaspora, photographers and how they return um, to their homeland and, and try to tell a different story of this place through family history. Um, but let's get started. So uh, as, as Stephen already said, uh, we're talking about the seventh interfaith action principle today and I'm gonna come back to this slide when we open it up for conversation. Um, but it's, it's really about thinking about how we can commit to solidarity with migrants around the world, um, ensure their dignity, human rights, and protection. So I want us to think about how art offers an avenue for that, um, both on a, a level of affect, you know, it really tugs on our heartstrings and, and creates this emotional connection. Um, but also on the level of intellect, right? It ma makes us think differently about some of these issues. It, it helps us consider things from very different perspectives. And I think that's what's so powerful about um, writing about art and also about teaching art. Um, so I wanted to start with the work of Tony Ortega. He is a Colorado-based Mexican-American artist um, and in 2006, Ortega was really moved by seeing the millions of people who decided to march. Um, and, and this uh, kind of protest movement for immigrant rights began in Chicago. Many of you might recall that in 2006. And then it spread to cities all over the country. And um, it really kind of motivated him to, to think about um, important icons like the Virgin of Guadalupe um, and also the Statue of Liberty, right? These are really important icons um, that he tried to combine uh, to talk about immigrant rights. And I'll, I'll come back to this print, but I just wanna show you a little bit about um, the artist. So we're gonna watch a very short video. I make art just like I need to breathe, or I make art just like I need to eat. I mean, I make art because I need to. That's how I survive. My work is about identity. It's about being Mexican-American. My name is Tony Ortega. I'm a visual artist, a painter, printmaker. I live here in Denver, Colorado. I see myself as an expressionistic artist. I work from the heart. I work with a real bold use of color, not necessarily primary color, but color that has a little more saturation, more punch to it. What I'm doing is I'm, uh, I'm using alternative tools to make marks. Not trying to simulate the texture, but to exaggerate it a little bit. Like it's pulled out, right? Initially, when I first started making my work, I started doing genre scenes everyday life 
and but also I start painting a collective, the community, family, the workers, students, commuters, athletes, whatever I could find in the neighborhood where the studio was or throughout my travels. And I've been making these um, hybrid images and these hybrid images are, are drawn from popular American culture and popular Mexican culture. So I'll bring Our Lady Guadalupe with the Statue of Liberty, or I'll put uh, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera as, uh, as Mexican Gothic instead of American Gothic. But recently I've been making some silkscreen, but working with acrylic underpainting. And, and I think that, you know, artists are, are more open now to not just using a paintbrush. So I've been using scrapers. I've been sanding back into to things. I've also been using squeegees in order to move the move the paint. So I've been diluting the paint a little bit with acrylic medium to make it more transparent, and then painting it on on the panels, and then using squeegees to have the colors run together, blend together. But you see transitions. You don't get quite as I, I just wanted to show a little bit about Ortega's process so you understand that he's both a painter and a printmaker, a faculty member at Regis, um, and how he's really interested in combining uh, popular culture icons, as he said, from both cultures, right, from, from the Mexican side and from the U.S. side. And that's what uh, creates this uh, very interesting icon of of Lupe Liberty, as he calls her. And for those of you who um, may not be familiar with this faith tradition, the Virgin of Guadalupe, Guadalupe is a really important figure in the Catholic faith. Um, she's the mother of Christ and as a maternal figure, um, all Catholics pray to her and ask her for protection and for guidance. Um, she's also the patroness of the Americas and as such, um, she carries this um, kind of level of, of, of connection to uh, many of these Latin American countries. Um, and she's been used as part, as an icon, she's been used as part of many Latinx social movements. So when Cesar Chavez marked um, from Delano Sacramento, United Farm Workers were carrying a banner of the Virgin. Um, and so it, it's a really important icon of faith. Um, and she's a brown-skinned virgin, virgin, which also has kind of a racial politics to it, right, um, for many of these communities. And so Ortega um, really thought about what it would be to combine this figure with um, the Statue of Liberty, which is so symbolic for European immigrants, right? When they first arrived to the shores of New York um, and, and, and saw that. And he was doing this at a time when there was proposed legislation in 2006, which would make illegal entry a felony uh, for immigrants. And um, that's what set off many of the protests nationwide. Um, but also it really moved members of the Catholic faith um, and leaders in the Catholic church like Cardinal Roger Mahoney from the Archdiocese of LA to actually call on their priests and say, no, you should defy any law that requires you to ask for documentation um, of your parishioners. 
So it was a kind of an important symbolic moment. And continuing with um, this Catholic iconography, I wanted to show the work of another artist, Sandra Fernandez, who was born in New York to Ecuadorian immigrants. Um, her father actually joined the US military and her mother decided to take Sandra back to Quito where she, was, where she grew up. Um, and she eventually returned as an adult to study art here in the United States. Um, and eventually she took a teaching post in Texas. Uh, she's a printmaker and um, she also makes artist books. And while she was in Texas, she learned firsthand of the struggles of young immigrants who are known as the dreamers, um, children who were brought to the US before their 15th or 16th birthday and uh, who under the uh, Obama administration became eligible to apply for deferred action for childhood arrivals, um, which granted them the ability to work, but also to attend college um, and protected them against deportation. And so this was a really important moment when a lot of these youth kind of came out of the shadows and became, really got mobilized um, to begin a, a very kind of public uh, display of, of, you know, fighting for immigrant rights. Um, and for Fernandez, this was really important as something that she um, herself identified with. Uh, she was also a faculty member, so some of her students were dreamers. And um, so she decided to create works like Caution, Dreamers in or On Site, which is a portrait of these dreamers. Um, some of these are her students. She actually photographed them and then uh, transferred those photos into this silkscreen medium or screen print medium. Um, and she places their portraits over this port of entry map, um, which is the El Paso port of entry, um, and provides uh, a number of other icons. We see the running immigrants road sign that some of you might recognize here at the center. Um, we see how that sign is transformed up above with the running graduates um, who, who have their little cap and gown. And um, also there's a, a series of writing that's kind of underneath uh, some of that imagery and some of that, oh, by the way, this is the artist, Sandra Fernandez. Um, she's next to Sam Coronado, who is the director of the workshop where she made this print and the master printers, um, Jonathan Rebolloso and um, Logan Hill, who are in the background. Uh, and, and here they are proofing the work. But the writing uh, that you see in the background of the print actually comes from um, the Codex Mendoza, which is a 16th century document that was created, um, uh, the, the vice, um, the governor of New Spain requested that they make this document shortly after the fall of Tenochtitlan. And um, he wanted to send it to the King of Spain to be able to say, 
you know, this is how the Aztec empire was organized. These are the resources. This is what we have available to us, right? Um, and so for, for the artist, this document represents um, this, this relationship between the, the dominator and the dominated, right? Um, and this kind of reference to colonialism is for her a basis of current injustices that, that still exist today and that um, kind of dictate some of our ideas around nativism in this country. And um, I want to call your attention to her use of milagros, um, which are really important in the Catholic faith. Um, milagros are small religious folk charms. Some of you may have seen these. Um, they are used as votive offerings. Um, so depending on uh, the miracle that you might be asking for, um, you might see, um, you know, someone who has a heart condition might, you know, might uh, have a heart there, or maybe the heart is a symbol of, of asking for a loved one. Um, you know, you'll see limbs, you'll see all kinds of references, eyes as well in these uh, religious folk charms. And um, the artist uh, uses the, the little charm of the bird in this one to signify flight, travel, um, but also to, you know, to talk about migration and safe passage um, for many of these dreamers. And we see how um, the bird is actually attached after the print is made because uh, it's, it's not there in this initial um, proofing that you see. And she actually uses uh, thread to attach uh, this collage bird into her print. And uh, both of those artists are artists that I'll feature in my forthcoming book. It's called Reclaiming the Americas, Latinx Art and the Politics of Territory, uh, which thinks about how these artists have turned to printmaking to um, challenge and, and counter these ideas around um, xenophobia and nativism in the US. And that's gonna be out in April. Um, I also want to talk about a, a couple other artists. Um, Lassar Segal, for example, is uh, a really important artist who was born in Lithuania. Um, and here I'm going back a, a little bit in time. I was just showing you a lot of contemporary work, but these ideas around migration and diaspora are um, as old as art history, right? Um, they, they've been part of the, of the human story. Um, so Lazar Segal was born in Lithuania to a Jewish family and he studied art in Germany and he became part of the German Expressionist movement. But in 1923, after World War I, he settled in Brazil. And I wanna remind you that a lot of Europeans moved to Latin America during World War I and World War II. Um, and that became their home and their safe haven. And so he settled in Sao Paulo and became part of this really important movement of modern artists in Sao Paulo. And during the war years, he was really moved by um, the amount of, of refugees he was seeing uh, flee Europe 
but he also really wanted to connect to his roots, you know, his Jewish roots. Um, and in paintings like Navio de Migrantes, he, which is emigrant ship, he's exploring this theme um, and thinking about uh, so many, like thousands of immigrants who are leaving um, in these ocean liners and um, coming to the Americas. And I want to remind you that some of our ideas around diaspora are, are really coming from this tradition, from the Jewish tradition, right? Um, the, you know, when we think of diaspora, we're, we're talking about the scattering of people, the displacement, the dispersion of Jews that happened um, out of their ancient ancestral homelands and how they settled across the globe. Um, and so for the Jewish community, this is a story that's been happening since the third, the third century BC, right? Um, and, 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 and we see their dispersal through Greek and Roman times. Um, and you have to think about like, how did they maintain their sense of Jewishness, their sense of faith, their sense of identity um, throughout all of this dispersal that takes place. And here is a photo of the artist, um, just to give you a sense of the scale, right? That he's working with um, and his process. You see he's gritting out um, that, that painting. Uh, and this is a photo of his family back in Lithuania. And uh, Lithuania was really affected during World War II. Um, many Lithuanians had to flee um, and many of them came to the United States as well. And, you know, again, he's really trying um, for viewers to, to have an emotional response to understand uh, that these huddled masses, right, um, are uh, f fleeing and, and looking for safety. Um, and that some of these are the lucky ones, right, They're, that are able to leave, um, but, but that they're also suffering. And he, he tries to convey that um, in, in many ways and, and, and tries to elicit an emotional response. And finally, I wanted to introduce um, an artist who's new to me. Uh, I was looking for artists who are making work in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. And I found the work of Mohammed Hafez, who is a Syrian American artist and architect. He was born in Damascus and he was educated in the Midwest and has done a lot of projects with the University of Chicago. And his recent work is responding to the atrocities of the Syrian war um, and the refugee crisis that has displaced um, almost 7 million Syrians across the world. Um, they have sought asylum in more than 130 countries, as, as you know, and many of the displaced are based in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt right now. And some of them are still in refugee camps, you know, awaiting uh, a response. So I want to show you some of the work that, that he's been making and 
um, we can talk a little bit more about how he's uh, trying to elicit these, this emotional response, but also get you to think differently about who these folks are and why they're here. My name is Mohammed Hafez. I am a Syrian-American artist living in the United States, originally from Damascus, Syria. I am trained as an architect. I am not trained as an artist. So the tool that I'm most comfortable with is model building. Uh, tools to build architectural models for our projects and, and so on. And it, it started in college uh, while not being able to go home for about a decade. Uh, I got extremely homesick and it just so happened that one night I I was so homesick, I was alone, and I grabbed a bunch of scrap material and I started tinkering around. Eight, nine, ten hours later, um, I had built this artificial facade. Um, I didn't realize where the time went, but I knew it made me feel good to spend this much time in detailing and trying to imagine the narratives of people that inhabited these uh, architectural pieces. And in that sense, basically what took place is art therapy. I didn't, I was too young and naive to know it was called art therapy or cathartic uh, expression, but I knew it felt good and I knew uh, I wanted to make more. The turn point was when one of my own family members became a refugee in Sweden. Um, up until that point, I think the war to me, to my immediate family, was uh, something that's present in our lives, but still in the neighboring streets when my own flesh and blood sister became a refugee in Sweden. And when my own brother-in-law rode one of those boats across the Mediterranean, crisis hit the home snack center. So that's when I decided to utilize this tool that I had. I knew that it was able to express my feelings towards homesickness. And I believed in the power of art in building bridges and telling stories. And immediately I said, uh, this is the best way to build bridges in a very divided society. And without me opening my mouth with a single word, art speaks louder than any person. So that's when I decided we should tell these stories.
What happened with me is I had known these folks for years, and they're such powerful people that there were points about their lives I hadn't heard before this project, like Fereshti from Afghanistan that I knew her for years, and she had single-handedly ran a secret school for girls in a basement in Afghanistan under Taliban uh, to educate girls. And I told her, you know, I know you for years. How come this is the first time you're telling me? And she basically just shrugged her shoulders at me and she said, well, I didn't think it was a big deal. So it's, it's these moments that really like, for someone that's immersed in the American society as much as I was, I looked at her and said, do you know what the stereotype of a hijab wearing Afghani woman is out there right now? I need to tell your story. Please allow me. And so it took quite a negotiation with her to um, allow me to tell her story because there's fear, um, there's, you know, intimidation, and there's so much to deal with it. And the suitcase that we used for her story is her own mother's, actually. So what a powerful example, right, of, of someone who, um, you know, takes these feelings of a homesickness um, and creates this new art form, this, these beautiful sculptural maquettes uh, that recall specific places. Um, and, and then when the Syrian refugee crisis hits, um, then takes, takes that idea and, and really uses it to tell other people's stories. Uh, and to connect us to their plight. Um, so I wanna, I wanna stop here um, and kind of open it up for questions. And I'm, I'm happy to go back to a, a certain image if, if uh, we need to, or I, I can also stop sharing my screen so we can see each other. Yeah, if you if you uh, if you wanted to stop sharing, we can always return if, if someone yes. wants to uh, talk about a particular um, piece that you shared. But um, thank you so much, Tatiana, for for those vignettes of, of migration uh, around the world. And um, yeah, so I'll open it up to the group. Um, any anything that stuck out to you? Any questions for Tatiana as we uh, think about this topic? Yeah, Darlene. And you may not know the answer, but your first artist, Tony Ortega, I noticed that he didn't have the faces. There's no eyes, no. Um, and yeah, that's something very characteristic of his work. And he says that it's because he wants other people to see their family, see themselves, see, see the, you know, get a sense of putting your face <laughs> on that image, right? Um, and in a way, that's another way of identifying with, with this story, with this narrative that he's telling you. Tatiana, how are you? Hi, Kathleen, good to see you. Um, my quick observation on that same piece of art that uh, Ortega did is also these um, themes where women are concerned, obviously the Virgin of Guadalupe, but I was kind of curious about the woman holding up the Statue of Liberty underneath 
that, that was also kind of intriguing me. So I wondered if, I just thought there were some interesting themes about women in that piece. Uh, I saw this woman like the statue, the, the, uh, the Liberty, I can't even do it, but yes, anyway, the Statue of Liberty, that was the Virgin of Guadalupe. And I just wondered if there was any explanation about that kind of. Let me, uh, let me quickly share my screen and we can go back to that image since two people had a question about it. Um, mm -hmm. Of course. Okay, here it is. Um, so I think you were, you were uh, maybe referencing um, the, the, there's a little person holding up the Virgin. Yeah, and so my interpretation was it looked kind of like a woman, but it's really hard to tell. So in the original image of the Virgin of Guadalupe, there's an angel that holds her up. Um, and, and so that's probably, uh, what you're seeing there at the very bottom of the, the pedestal. Right, yeah, so more on the, the original iconography piece, really, just a, okay, great, because I didn't know that. That's yeah, cool. it's part of the original iconography. There's, um, there's an angel, there's usually um, the shape of a crescent moon, and then the figure of the, the Virgin emerges from it, usually has a mandorla around it as well. Yeah. Other questions, ideas, keywords that struck you? Well, Tatiana, I, I mean, I've been intrigued with this for a very long time and it was sort of summed up uh, toward the end. Um, um, and talking about the power of art uh, in terms of telling stories and building bridges. Mm -hmm. And um, I, living in an arts community, probably more sensitive to that uh, than in other places that I've lived, but I've always been, I've always thought that actually. And I'm so pleased to uh, experience this with you all this evening. Because uh, I think that uh, the power of art to not only tell stories and build bridges, but also to heal mm -hmm. is so relevant and important in terms of the lives we're living today. So um, congratulations on your work. Um, I so look forward to your book and I hope with Interfaith, we can actually experience more of this and use some of these learnings as we continue to um, um, do the work of justice. Thank you so much, Bobby. Um, and I, I think you're right. We're very lucky to live in a community there in Southwest Michigan that is very um, open to different kinds of art and um, also doesn't shy away from art that has a political edge, right? Right. Uh, and, and some of these works do because they are inevitably uh, enmeshed in all of these um, political conflicts that are happening all over the world. Exactly. Uh, that, that affect people's lives. Um, so 
so yeah, I, I, I feel lucky that, <laughs> that I'm part of that community um, and that we can bring these conversations. Um, and I also, you know, I, I, I brought my, uh, <laughs> my mail-in ballot that I just got from Michigan hey. to show you guys that um, all of these things that we talk about are things that, you know, we, we talk about, let's, let's um, vote our faith, right? We have that vote our faith campaign at, at Interfaith Action. Um, and that, you know, all of these things have real world consequences. Um, and so if, if you care about migrants, about refugees, about um, those who are seeking asylum in this country, then, then really go to the polls and, and, and think about that when you vote. That's right, go vote. Please go vote. Tatiana, I think as you've talked about the version of Guadalupe and, and kind of the powerful icon uh, she has been for justice movements as well as uh, an object of spiritual uh, devotion. Um, where have you seen or where would you like to see faith communities embrace uh, art uh, that uh, kind of communicates uh, emotionally, spiritually uh, in a transformative manner, our connection between faith legacies and contemporary justice commitments? Like where have I seen those things happen? Yeah, or where where would you like to see them? Would, Any uh, best practice models that you've experienced or uh, your fantasies about experiencing them? Yeah, no, oh, that's a great question, Sid. Um, you know, I think that for a long time, artists of color have, sorry, just a second. Sorry, my son is getting home and, and the dog was scared. <laughs> um, so for a long time, artists of color in this country have um, often had to create their own institutions, their own galleries, their own museums and cultural centers in order to mount exhibitions of their work. Um, and that has to do with the racism that still exists in the art world. And that's changing, right? Um, we've seen that change happening since the 80s, 90s, um, and that continues until today, but it's still there, it still exists. And, um, and so I think that to, to answer your question, like where would I like to see this? I would like to see this work being shown at, at more mainstream museums, right? I, I would like to see MoMA and, um, you know, places uh, like the Whitney uh, having exhibitions that deal with migration, that deal with the refugee crisis, um, that take the, the voices of these artists as seriously as um, any of the Euro-American artists that they often show. Um, and that being said, I think that we need to also pay our respects and um, learn about what 
these communities have organized for, you know, sometimes for decades, right? Um, whether it's, it's Muslim or Jewish or Latinx uh, communities, they've had institutions for a really long time in this country and, and have also been at the forefront of, um, you know, being a leading voice on these issues. And so we cannot discount any of their work. In, in fact, we should center their work um, while also asking for mainstream institutions to become more inclusive and to, um, you know, be able to, to address all of their constituents, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, uh, something I would like uh, Interfaith Action to continue to reflect on is the fact that throughout the ages, uh, faith congregations have often been centers for the creation of art and also have been galleries for the presentation of art. And it has been a powerful means of developing social consciousness as well as the application of faith to contemporary realities. And Absolutely. how might our faith communities continue that proud legacy, which doesn't appear to be as strong as it has in other periods of history. So I, I encourage us, I, I think, to reflect on what that might mean for Absolutely. us as interfaith action. I think churches um, have historically played a strong role in supporting artists, um, especially in regards to these issues and um, in regards to sanctuary, right? Um, and so it would be nice to see more churches kind of offering their spaces up for exhibitions, for talks, um, for film screenings, um, you know, maybe there's an artist residency that can happen at your church. Maybe mm -hmm. um, those are things that, that you can plan for because I think it's a great way to um, really attract new audiences um, using art as, as, as a, you know, the conversation starter. That's how I like to think of it. Darlene? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, saying that, we're just starting up a new ministry, Arts of Mediator. And if you know of artists who would like to show some of their work at our church, or I, I don't know what it would mean to be an artist in residence, but uh, let me know, send them our direction. We'd love that. Yeah, I can definitely send people your way. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah, and this uh, this question that you, you, you know, started, Sid, has me thinking as someone who does faith formation work, about just the power of um, activities and faith communities that get us thinking about migration. Um, you know, migration is a human story. And, um, you know, each of us comes from uh, another place and m many of us, not all of us, um, but uh, just activities that, you know, particular faith communities can do to explore um, that reality, I think is something maybe worth thinking about, but I'm also cognizant we, we've already kind of um, run the time, but is there anyone else who had a, had a question that, uh, that we haven't got to yet or? 
would like to make an observation? I would like to make an observation. Um, thank you so much. Uh, terrific presentation, very thought provoking. Appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> yeah, ditto. Yeah, thank you so much for, um, for this conversation on the common home once again. Last week we did common home on environment. And this week we've returned to the idea of common home, but you know, under the theme of migration, um, which I think is it's interesting to think of in terms of just that that commonality that that we share a home, we share this earth, uh, and we are responsible for how we care for it and one another. So you brought that out very well in, in our um, conversation tonight, Tatiana, and we look forward to your book this coming spring. Hopefully we can share that as a resource with uh, with one another. So thank you so much. 